Our first uh, scripture reading today is from the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It's on page 24 of the New Testament. Matthew 22, 34 to 46. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your, your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest gift of the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, by the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one has been able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our uh, second scripture lesson comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy. Normally we read the gospel second uh, and the Hebrew scripture first, but I wanted to zero in on the Hebrew scripture Plus, um, it's full of, uh, of names of geographic areas, so we figured we'd leave the pronunciation to the professionals. <laughs> um, and those of you who were here last Sunday will appreciate it. As I step into the pulpit, there's a crumpled $20 bill. Um, not going to throw it again because it knocks over music stands. Deuteronomy 34, the, uh, the end of the story of Moses. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain that is valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. The Lord said to them, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. At the Lord's command, he was buried in the valley but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him, doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. 
for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of Israel. God bless to us the reading and hearing of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in thee, O Lord. For you alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else should we go? Amen. When I was a child, every evening after dinner, we weren't allowed to rush off into the evening's activities to play outside or to work on homework or turn on the TV. No, there was one more thing that happened after dinner, and that was family devotions. When I was a little kid, the youngest of five, my father read from an age-appropriate book of devotions for just such an occasion. It was called Glad Moments with God. And when we'd finished that volume, fortunately the authors had created another one. It was called More Glad Moments with God. <laughs> and believe it or not, this is true, volume three was More and More Glad Moments with God. There came a point where we'd been through the books a few times. You do something every single night, 365 or so days a year, um, you can whip through a lot of traffic in a, lot of, in a short period of time. And so uh, we switched from the devotionals to my father just reading a few chapters from the Bible itself, starting in Genesis and reading contiguously all the way to the book of Revelation. Now, occasionally we got bogged down in the book of Numbers and my dad would just simply say, and there were 3,000, yada, yada, and 1,200, blah, 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 and flip a few pages till the narrative picked up again. But for the most part, word for word, page for page, chapter for chapter, book for book, all 66 books of the Bible were read by my father to my mom, my grandmother, and us five kids. And as soon as we got to the very last verse, the final amen of the book of the Revelations of John, we'd start all over again with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I don't know how many times we made it from Genesis to Revelations, and as we hit kind of into our teen years, the plan fell apart as we had after-school activities and things that cut into the dinner hour. But when we were all there, that's what happened. Every evening. Yeah, there are moments when I think I grew up at the table of Norman Rockwell. There were moments that you specifically remember from the stories. I'll never forget every time we got to Deuteronomy 34, when God took Moses to Mount Nebo, and he ascended the pinnacle of Pisgah, and looked out over the promised land, and God says, you see it, but you don't get to go there, and there Moses died. My oldest sister, Linda, would start to cry. It seems so unfair, does it not? After all the ridiculous nonsense he'd endured with the children of Israel, after having followed the pillar and the flame with the children of Israel behind them like herding cats when they would get hungry or frustrated or thirsty, it seemed just a little unreasonable that God did not allow him to go in to the promised 
land. He saw it at a distance. But his feet, the feet which had been unshod 40 years before at the burning bush, his feet that had trudged across the dry land by the divided Red Sea, his feet which were firmly planted on Mount Sinai when God gave him the law and said, you can see my glory, but not my face. He was not allowed to place those same feet on the Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, the land promised to his ancestors. And that's, my friends, is the nasty truth about mortality. When we pass, those who are younger, those who are healthier, those who are born into a time after our time has ended, they are the ones who pick up the journey. They do it without us. They harvest what we've planted. They fulfill what we've envisioned. Theirs is the glory that is not ours to see. Like Moses, buried in some unmarked grave in Moab, we become yesterday's news. And all that we thought was valuable, all of our meanings and our purposes and our goals are strangely outdated and become quaint, only to be mused about by someone else's future when a great, great grandchild, perhaps, just perhaps, finds our name on Ancestry.com and says, Wow, listen to how weird it was at the beginning of the 21st century. We confess with the psalmist, to you a thousand years are like a single day, a yesterday, now over an hour of the night. We become like a waking dream, we're like grass, we sprout and flower in the morning and we're withered and dried before dusk. And as Moses stood on the top of the mountain, there on Mount Nebo, on the peak of Pisgah, looking northwards towards the promised land, he could have turned and looked to the south, equidistant to his south, was that place where Moses would have seen his first call, the burning bush, there as he was in the shepherd's job for his father-in-law, Jethro, his whole life. Behind him, the burning bush. Before him, the land to which he would not enter. Except, unlike all the other encounters between Moses and God, this time, Moses has no rebuttal. He does not rage against the dying of the light. He doesn't convetch or wrestle with Yahweh or state his emphatic disagreement that he should be the one to finish the job. Oh, we can write his argument, right? Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't make me do all of this leading stuff only to cut me off from the final goal. These people have been driving me crazy for 40 years. And now when the land is so close, so close that we can actually smell the vegetation, you're going to deny me the honor of conquest? Moses could have said that. He wanted the glory of completion. After all, it wasn't a question of Moses getting too old at the memorial service. More than one person remarked about the fact that his eye had not dimmed. He still had clear vision 
no presbyopia that required bifocals. He still was vigorous. He could have trounced the Canaanites. But instead, Moses, quietly, gently, goes into that good night. The sense of injustice was not Moses' problem. He does not share our discomfort that makes us think his life was cut too short. It's the modern heart that aches for Moses, not the heart of Moses. We see our lives as a single strand alone thread, stories with a beginning and a middle and an end. What Moses and the people got that we have lost the ability to understand is that God's promise was not to Moses. God's promise was to a people. Not a side broker deal with one man, but an arrangement in covenant with generations. Remember the tragic burning of Notre Dame? Remember that? We watched it on television. Broke your heart even if you'd never visited it. Watching the flames lap at the roof and then the large tower crash into the nave. It was four years ago this past April that that happened. It's been four long years, right? Hard to believe. Completely reconstructed within a year, the French authorities told us. And then they said, no, no, two years. Well, maybe three years. But definitely by 2025, Notre Dame will be rebuilt. It's our impatience that cries what's taking so long when the construction project interrupts our drive to work for a week and a half. The first Notre Dame construction began in 1163, and it was not completed for another 182 years. Think about it. Great, 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 great grandchildren of those who had laid the cornerstone were the ones who were there for the ribbon cutting. No, mortality disrupts our impatience. For most of human history, people have understood their spot, their blip, their moment of the stage of history, contributing comfortably with a faltering line or two, perhaps, never fully seeing the flow or the plot their contribution to the ever-flowing stream of time. We think the story is all about us, ourselves, our time, our moment, when in reality God's unfolding work began a long time before we were born and will go on a long time after we're gone. And in order to not collapse in despair over that fact, we're going to have to make ourselves comfortable with a future that we will not live to see. 133 years ago, mind you, only about 60% of the time that it took to build Notre Dame, a handful of Presbyterians in a town called LaGrange decided that they needed a church of their own. 
20 years before, as the story is told, in 1879, Franklin Cossett started a village. Yes, Franklin Cossett, after the burning of Memphis during the Civil War, sold his plantation and his slaves to come to Chicago. There he began to buy land just west of the city of Chicago on the Burlington Rail Line, and he had a grocery store in the city. During the Great Chicago Fire, the grocery store was burned, and so he decided to go move to where he had laid claim to the land. He originally wanted to call the town Kensington. Did you know that? He wanted to call it Kensington after the town that he had left in Memphis. But the people of Kensington, Illinois, did not think that was a good idea. And so he had to name it LaGrange, which was the name of his plantation back in Tennessee. He had a few things about his new town. Uh, there were three prohibitions. Three prohibitions. Two he could emphatically enforce, one maybe not so much. The first prohibition was no cemeteries. Uh, those who have ever sat on the board of the Memorial Garden know the impact of that because we have to make sure that there are things we do not do in the Memorial Garden lest someone think it is cemetery. Number two, no saloons. He wanted people of sober judgment in LaGrange and there was only one liquor license which was grandfathered in in a little building right by the tracks. It's now where the Grapevine restaurant is located. That was LaGrange only saloon and it predated Mr. Cossett. The third, not quite so successful, but still emphatic at the time, no Catholics. On the positive side, Franklin Cossett wanted trees, lots and lots of trees. And so before he even sold the lots, he surveyed where the streets were going to go. And on either side of those surveyed places, he would plant trees. That's why when you walk around the older part of LaGrange, most of the trees are older than the houses themselves. The other thing that Franklin Cossett wanted was churches, Protestant churches, lots and lots of churches. And so he decided that any denomination, any Protestant denomination, who wanted to build a church in his new town would be granted free land. He could only follow through with the construction of one church out of his own pocket. That's Emmanuel Episcopal Church which, by the way, is named for Emanuel Episcopal Church just outside of the plantation in LaGrange, Tennessee, which, by the way, earlier in life, he also built. We are coming up on our 133rd congregational anniversary. Most of our neighbors are celebrating their 150th anniversary. What happened? Well, the Methodists and the Congregationalists, and the Episcopalians, and the Baptists, and the Lutherans all decided that Mr. Cossett's offer was too good to pass up. Unfortunately, the Presbytery of Chicago thought with those Congregationalists and Methodists and Episcopalians there'd be no need for a Presbyterian church, and so they took a pass. The Presbytery of Chicago has never understood LaGrange. <laughs> and so it was in 1890 eight-ish, that the Presbyterians said, we've got to catch up. And so, 1890, I'm sorry, 18, 1889, and then 1890, they formed a corporation that became our church 133 years ago. Strangely enough, we have, in honor of that, 
uh, put a museum on the garden level of our Ashland building, our educational building, on the lowest level, garden level, it's not a basement, please, we're dignified, garden level, is the church's museum. Why in God's name would we, a people oriented to the future, looking into what is to come, seeing forward with our meaning and purpose, why would we put together a room dedicated to the history and memorabilia of the past? There's a vision in that. Why celebrate the shadows of what was when we're supposed to be looking to what is to come? More than that, today after church we're going to share coffee and conversation in that selfsame space, our museum. Susan Sedler, this is the longest announcement the museum will ever receive. <laughs> Why are we doing it? Because what they did 133 years ago, what they built 75 years ago, our education building on Ashland, and 61 years ago, this grand mid-century modern sanctuary, they are the ones who made it possible. They made us possible. And while we do inscribe dates on cornerstones and plaques, what truly matters is not the artifacts they've left, but the wisdom they shared. When Jesus faces the Pharisees in our Gospel lesson, it is interesting that Jesus quotes who? Moses. The Messiah quotes Moses. He doesn't reference Moses because that's not what is important. What is important is the wisdom that is handed forward generation to generation. In the ninth chapter of our reading today from Deuteronomy 34, the people are at peace after they mourn the loss of Moses. Why, the verse says, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. It wasn't that Joshua inherited the staff or the tablets or the cloak or the hat or the scepter, or any other physical symbol of power. It was the wisdom that Moses passed on to Joshua that brought the people hope. Now, last Sunday, we had a commissioning service here in worship for our confirmation class. Right? And we had our confirmants stand before the congregation. We promised that we would pray for them and support them as they endeavored to wrestle with their own faith and determine their own direction and understanding. Some of you thought, oh dear, our confirmation class only has three kids in it. Ugh. It's a sad time for the church. Let's go downstairs to the museum and look back when there were dozens upon dozens of young people in their little suits and Sunday dresses, all being confirmed. The classes were huge, but remember this. Moses had a confirmation class of one. And what mattered was not the class's size, but the power of the wisdom imparted. 
when Jesus is asked the question, 1,200 years after Moses, what is the greatest commandment? He answers with a combination of words from the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus 19. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, on these bits of wisdom handed down from Moses to Joshua to the judges to the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel and the psalmist, these two nuggets of wisdom upon those hang everything else in the history of our people, the law and the prophets. I'd suggest we are here not because our forebearers were good builders. Not because our forebearers set aside endowed funds. We are here because of the transferred wisdom that we received. We are here because not the entire building is a museum. We have a museum for continuity, but we have a facility and a people and a place for passing wisdom to those who will come after. Jesus cited Moses the man, but more importantly, he cited the wisdom that Moses had handed forward. Weep not for the loss of Moses. Weep instead for those who lose wisdom. Amen. Please stand and join with me in our confession of faith, the words of the wisdom handed down through the centuries in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth.